Hello and welcome to My Garden, My Life, in which I chat with interesting guests who love and nurture their outdoor space and themselves in the process. I'm Sarah Layton, garden designer and psychotherapist, and I know from my own experience and that of the women I work with, how much our relationships with our garden can support us day to day. I've come to realise that gardens link to so much that is important in our lives, to space and connection, nature, passion, and to our very deepest selves. The space outside your door, be it large or small, can literally change your life. These conversations start with the garden, but travel to a world of other subjects too. We discuss plants and gardens, of course, but also personal space, feminism, body image, nature, social history, things psychological, and much more. I absolutely love having them, and I hope they inspire you to connect more with your own garden and with the natural world, and to notice how you feel when you do. So hello and welcome. Today's conversation is with Claire Yarwood-White, who runs Opal & Co. Claire lives in what was the gardener's cottage on an estate owned by Mrs Earle, a society woman, influencer we'd called her today, and feminist and author, whose book, Potpourri from a Surrey Garden, was published in 1897. Claire and I had a wonderful chat about how the book and her garden inspire her and impact her life. We talked gardens and plants, obviously, but also feminism and body image. And it's a real journey of a conversation. So please join us and enjoy. Claire, we've had a lovely, lovely half an hour trying to get the mic set up. I think we're up and running. I think we're up and running, feeling a bit nervous about this. It's my first recording, not in person. Well, we don't really do tech, do we, Sarah? Let's be honest. I mean, it's... <laughs> Maybe we're a bit older than the tech. <laughs> it's a, a trowel is about as technical as we get. I'm not sure this internet thing's going to catch on, if I'm honest, you know, I think. <laughs> mm, I, have to, I have to dispute that, Claire. I know I, I actually am quite good at tech. I just, this took a bit of doing, but... I don't feel too scared of it. But anyway, what happened last time, because I did go and meet you in your lovely home in Surrey. Yeah, we had a lovely afternoon, didn't we? We we sat on the sofa and nattered and we had a lovely lunch and you bought me my beautiful hyacinth, which flowered and I enjoyed. And yeah, we had a lovely time. We just, did, just didn't manage to record a podcast. <laughs> and then when I got home, I had the test, test, test bit but not the rest of the recording. It's what I like to think of as a silent podcast. <laughs> but it was very, very sweet of you to agree to do the whole thing again. And what we've just been discussing is whether we're going to try and capture the same conversation. And I said to you, I don't think we should. I think what we should do is just be where we're at and go from there. So the reason we're chatting is because I know how much you're garden means to you and you have a very interesting garden with a history but before we get into all of that would you like to just tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Yes of course so my name is Claire Yarwood White I am a brand writer so I run a company called Opal & Co and through Opal & Co I work with businesses to write whatever words they need to communicate about their brand. So it can be anything as small as a strap line or as large as content for an entire website. 
And that was how I met you, wasn't it, Sarah, when we worked together on on some of your social media. So what I try to do is is help my clients work out, first and foremost, what they want to say, because that's usually the biggest hurdle. So often that involves getting rid of things that they're saying that are muddying the waters or, you know, messages that are getting crowded out or lost. So really sort of refining what we're trying to say in any communication, whether it's a brand communication or it's a more specific piece of marketing, and then writing some words that, um, you know, will capture the imagination of the audience and uh, hopefully get them to take whatever action we want them to, to take as a result. So yeah, that's what I do. And I remember how fantastic you, we had some really lovely conversations because when we spoke, it was much earlier in my growthfully building journey. And I had this idea, but I was really not clear what words I could use to describe it. And if I knew what words they were, I didn't know how to put it out on Instagram or on my website. Just didn't really have a clue how any of that worked. And you really, I really enjoyed the way you, I was going to say pulled apart. It wasn't pulled apart. It was sort of teased, teased apart. What is it you actually mean? What is it you're wanting to say? I got to the nub of what was important to me, what my mission is in Growthly. And I really appreciated that. And it actually was really, really a formative part of the process. Thank you. Well, yeah, I mean, that, that's that's lovely to hear. And yes, that's exactly what I try to do is, you know, I don't make things up for my clients. I, I try to uh, see where all the good stuff is already in there. And, and as you say, um, draw it out. But, you know, it's it's so much easier to do when you're you're looking at something from the outside. I think, you know, we all we all struggle with this and I find it harder to do for myself. You know, when you're so close to something, it's it's really hard to see the wood for the trees and see what matters and see what's important. So, you know, a lot of the value comes from having a, an external pair of eyes on what you're doing and, um, you know, seeing it from a, a new perspective. That's absolutely right. And actually, that leads me back to gardens because that's kind of where, mm. we're, where we're at. And that's that's how I help people. It's because I can come in and see what they can't. And when they're so close to the space, they really can't necessarily tell. And it's interesting because I've been working on my own garden a lot, my new garden. And it's been really hard to be my own client. Is it? Yeah. (laughs) much easier to go into somebody else's garden and see what's needed. But anyway, that takes us on to gardens. And my question from you about that is, tell me about your garden. Mm, okay, I will. Okay, so we moved into this house in Cobham about six years ago, and we came from a townhouse with a tiny little square of lawn and some very no maintenance evergreen shrubs. And so I hadn't really gardened at all until I arrived at this house. And the interesting thing about this house is that it's sort of evolved over the years, but the oldest part of our house is a gardener's cottage, which is about 250 years old. And it's called, our house is called Woodlands Cottage. And it was originally the gardener's cottage for a big estate for the Woodlands estate, which way beyond me behind here, where the big main house was, and then all of the surrounding area, which has now been built on and has other houses on, was was the grounds and the gardens of, of Woodlands. So my house and, you know, then my house has sort of been extended over the years in the 1920s and again in the 1970s. So it's a bit of a a mismatch. But what's interesting to me about it is that it it was a gardener's cottage. It was the first garden that I ever had. It's a very established garden. 
it's not la- it's not particularly large because it's been it's been chopped up over the years. But it does wrap around your house, which is special. It wraps around, yeah, yes, and and actually, I love that about it. So the house is sort of in the middle of the plot, and then around the house, you've got um, a sort of driveway on one side with a beautiful wisteria. Well, two wisterias. Actually, oh, your wisteria were lovely. Oh, amazing! A lilac one and a pink one. And I picked up those seed heads. Do you remember? Oh yes, yeah, they're like little bunny ears, aren't they? They've opened. Did they? What on their own? Yes. So when I picked up these seed heads when I went to visit Claire in her garden, they were long and like velvet, like a sort of grey velvet. Capital. You could hardly believe they come from a plant, really. They're so textile like aren't they yeah so what's happened I put them on a pretty little plate in my display in the house and what's happened is they've kind of curled and opened to show their seeds they look like they should be magnolia to me but wisteria yeah no fascinating aren't they um yes so we've got we've got this sort of wraparound situation where we've got the wisteria which go under the uh, the pink wisteria into a little courtyard and then the the the, the lawn and the garden goes around the other two sides of the house I'm making it sound very grand it isn't really it's quite it's quite small isn't it but it's very sweet and it's very nice proportions actually it is little each of the yeah. spaces are little but they're usable spaces yes absolutely so it's just big enough for a one-sided game of football on the lawn and well, you know, it's just big enough to have a, <laughs> a barbecue on the courtyard and so on but yeah I love the orientation of the house and the fact that there's always a something new around a corner. So it doesn't have that sort of square of lawn out the back where there's no secrets, you know, every, it's got that kind of feel of, it was a great garden for hide and seek. And it was when the boys were little and they had smaller bikes, they just used to cycle round and round in circles around the house in a loop. And then, or they say, time me, mummy, how long will it take me to run around the house? You know, so it's got that sort of great for hiding and going somewhere feel to it. But anyway, thinking about the history of the house, what, I discovered shortly after I moved in was that the house was owned by a lady called Mrs. Earl at one point. So the Woodlands house and her gardener, amongst other gardeners in history, had lived in the house here, lived in our cottage. And Mrs. Earl was a writer and a gardener, garden designer. And in, I think it was 1898-99, she published a book called Potpourri from a Surrey Garden which stayed in print until the 1980s, apparently. It was incredibly popular. And I have a copy of that. I got a copy once I found out about her in the history of the house. And it's just the most delightful journal. It's written on a a month-by-month basis, so January, February, etc. And in it, she goes into great detail about what she's doing in her garden, what's growing. She pops in recipes for things that she's uh, grown she pops in pieces of poetry that inspire her she puts in tips about flower arranging in the fashionable style it's like she was doing instagram story yeah yeah absolutely Isn't it's wonderful it? it's a very yes. sort of yeah a, a more an earlier version of what we what we do to tell people about our lives and what's what are inspiring us and what's flowering now and yeah, that's right. And and then I think she sort of says that in the opening uh, chapter of the book. She says, I'm just, I'm not writing this for any other reason. I just want to get my ideas down. I think, in fact, it was, was it, she was started to write it for a niece or somebody. So it was written very much as a sort of a personal reference. And she has such a 
lovely, accessible style of writing. She's so likable. And I think, as you say, she was almost like an influencer of her time. She had some very modern views. She was a feminist and she had some very modern views for the, for the time of writing. And a lot of it, resonated with me immediately and on on reading it and sort of standing living in the house where you know her gardener lived and was doing all this work in the garden I thought I really like you and um, there was this lovely anecdote about how when she needed the gardener she used to stand on the terrace of the house and ring a bell and um, apparently he had quite selective hearing about whether or not he would choose to, <laughs> to respond to her bell or not when he heard it ringing in the garden. And she was a feminist within her time wasn't yeah. she in that she was a very privileged feminist so she had strong opinions about society women and how women should be educated and we probably wouldn't recognize them as particularly up there in feminist terms now. I think she was a sort of a feminist of her era wasn't she so I think she believed that women belonged in the home but she certainly didn't think that there was anything that a woman you know wasn't uh, wasn't capable of or you know in terms of of our brain power because I think there was you know a school of thought at the time that um, you know women had a slightly weaker mental ability hysteria prone to hysteria yes exactly and so you know I think um, you know you could sort of read it and, and I think you can forgive her some of her um, she was certainly forward thinking for her generation and her time put it that way Absolutely. And she was friends with, with suffragettes, wasn't she? Yeah, yeah. And with um, some really influential um, people of the time. So she used to hang out because she had a house in London and, and this was her Surrey country home. Which she said was rather a small one with only two acres. Yes, that's right. A mere two acres, it says. <laughs> in this. It's, it's a very modest, a modest country house with a mere two acres. But when she was in London, she used to hold these salons with very, you know, liberal thinkers of the time. And, and people like Oscar Wilde and John Ruskin, um, I believe, were in the same sort of social circles as her. So I bet she was, just, oh, she sounds fascinating. I wish I could have. And Gertrude Jekyll. Yes, Gertrude Jekyll was a, a, you know, the garden designer who who was, was a contemporary of hers. And yeah, so, yeah, I, I feel like I'm sitting on this amazing piece of, of history. And what it's done for me is open up a whole new um when I moved into this house and I had no frame of reference for gardening or no experience of gardening I started to read a lot more about gardening I started to uh, get very interested in historic houses and 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 their gardens and just sort of see gardening through different eyes so I do love I do love a national trust garden you know I think because mm. I love um, you know, I'm not so much into contemporary garden design, but I love I love a cottage garden or a national trust garden because it feels like I've got my own little teeny mini version of that here. So I, I get a lot of inspiration from going out and about looking at those types of gardens. And how does that influence what you do with your garden? Well, here's the thing with my, my garden. So as I think we probably all know, gardening, learning to garden, it's a journey, isn't it? And it's a learning curve. And I think what happened was I moved in here all sort of wide eyed and optimistic thinking, right, I'm going to get this looking like a National Trust garden. And um, I started sort of one flower bed at a time. But I, I started, first of all, by chucking a bit of money at it. So I got a garden designer in 
who I said, can you just clear this bed? Because there was a lot of it had got a little bit out of hand and there were some plants in there that I felt were a bit ugly and didn't really do the job. So I wanted to go back to something a bit more cottage gardeny. So I wanted to put in some some lab, lavender and more of a t- traditional herbaceous border. But what I learned from doing that, and it might sound silly to those of you that know a bit more about gardening than I did at the time, was that annuals don't come back. <laughs> so I spent a huge amount of money with this guy and he, he sort of designed this film set style flower bed with everything in flower and put it all in. I went fabulous and handed over a big wadge of money. And of course, that was that. And that is so naughty. <laughs> it's so naughty of him to do that with you. Do you think? Well, I don't know. I don't blame him, but he did what I asked him to do. Well, did he? Because I think his job is to find out what is it you really want. Mm. And do you want a garden that looks good for five minutes? Or do you want a garden that's actually got some some longevity mm. and some seasonal limits? And it's going to, you know, it's going to die down a little bit, but then it'll come up again and perennials and, and you know. Annuals, I think, I don't know, they're for shows. They're not for, well, they're for, for, for plugging gaps and adding a bit of interest ongoingly, but, but not when you get a designer, designer involved. Yeah. Well, I still have all the beautiful lavender. So that's amazing. And that's, you know, that stood the test of time. So after that, I think what I learned very quickly, actually, was that I am not in charge in this garden. And in a way, that was really nice, because I think I'd come in with my normal sort of organizer hat on and thought, I'm going to come in here and make this look like something fabulous. And although it was a a bit of a hard lesson to learn, I think it was a really valuable one to really understand that I need to work in partnership and harmony with the garden. And I need to, there's so much the garden can teach me. And one of the, the most joyful things I find is seeing what comes up, where it wants to come up. And if I like it, and if it's happy, you know, dividing it and encouraging it, you know, I don't have a lot of spare money to go out and buy endless new plants. So I'm a big fan of, of, dividing and my mum bless her has more time so she nurtures little cuttings and things for me so she'll arrive with a big tray of cuttings and say I've got these you know hydrangeas or I've got and I'm like yeah let's stick them in there and see what happens and you know so there's a lot of that goes on now I've got some gorgeous sedums which I've now got pretty much everywhere because they're so happy in the garden and I think well brilliant let's work with that so I'll divide those and keep moving those around I've also had some lovely some of my most precious plants are actually gifts. And one of the people that helped me a lot when I was first moved in here was Fiona Humberstone, the brand stylist who I know, you know, Sarah. Yeah, Mm, I know Fiona. And I know she's a keen gardener as well. She's an amazing gardener. Yeah. And in her old house, I'd watched her build this incredible garden with these beautiful raised beds. And we used to go, I used to take my children around for tea and they'd go picking the tomatoes or whatever was growing. Oh, lovely. her Her garden did always looked like something from a magazine it was it was fabulous she did have a designer helper didn't I think she, she did originally yes but you know she she's got such Fiona's got such a great eye but anyway Fiona gave me over the course of of you know a while she's given me some lovely plants and one of them she gave me which I never know how to pronounce but you'll tell me it's the the winter flowering box that smells like honeysuckle sarka cocker sarka cocker thank you 
Um, there's a Confusa and there's a Hookeriana, and I'm not sure which one you've got. Yes. Well, Fiona gave it to me. She said, plant it by the door. And I originally planted it opposite the front door and it wasn't very happy because it was a bit shady there. It's under a cherry tree. So I left it there for a year and it didn't really do much. So I thought, well, we'll we'll try him somewhere else. So I moved him into the to the flower bed next to the front door and it's happy as Larry. And that makes me feel really good because I feel like I found a way to help that plant thrive. And then in the winter, in the evenings, I come home and I open my front door and I get this wonderful waft of honey. And, and I always think of Fiona, you know, and, and that's that's the sort of thing I enjoy having in my garden. You know, a plant that I've bonded. With. I kind of bond with a few of my plants and others I don't bond with so much. But the ones that I bond with, they're almost like little pets. You know, I take care of them and I feel very fondly towards them. <laughs> and I think they're very evocative, aren't they? So they do. The thing about plants is they do hold associations memories the scent instantly transforms you Mm. transports you back to where you were when you got it or you first smelt it or there's something very very evocative and powerful in that giving and receiving of Mm. plants much more so than if you happen to go into I don't know a garden center or pick something up somewhere really random Mm. and pop it in that that's that that thing about relationship being embodied into a plant I think is really really lovely and I wanted to go back to this idea of being not in charge oh yeah and wonder how that's whether that's been something that you have taken and run within other areas of your life (laughs) yes yes it is um I think I'm at a stage in my life I guess you know partly moving moving house the age that my children are now the age that I am I'm in my how old am I now 47 gonna be 48 this year and I think you know possibly like a lot of women it's an age where we we start to feel it maybe it's time to stop listening to the voices you know maybe it's time to you know we, we find a new a new confidence and I think in my younger years I certainly used control as a as a coping mechanism you know if I could just keep a lid on everything and keep smiling and keep everything ticking over and everybody happy and pleasing everybody then all is well in the world and obviously you know that's quite an exhausting place to be and I had a bit of a turning point with my health over the last decade as well because I was diagnosed after my second baby was born with polycystic liver I already knew I had polycystic kidneys but polycystic liver which means that my liver has been gradually getting larger and larger over over the course of the last 10 years and it's now very large and causes me quite a lot of discomfort and also embarrassment because I look pregnant and so regularly people will congratulate me on you know my baby and that's that was very challenging to, to deal with at first because of the just the sheer social anxiety of that situation of having to you know having to say well I'm terribly sorry I'm you know actually I'm not pregnant and then oh, cringe awkward and the you know, idea uh, that you would say I'm terribly sorry I'm not <laughs> as though you know it's necessary to protect them oh I know well that that's exactly it that's exactly it so I would feel because people people are coming with such a position of kindness you know they, they like they're pleased for me they they want they think it's something nice and and at first you know and if it was somebody in a supermarket or I've had it you know in shops where complete strangers will come over and touch my bump 
and go, oh, what do you do? And I'll go, and I'll go, oh, you know, September. And then like, just get the hell out of there because I think I can't do this. And then, or the alternative is, and I've, I have learned to do this now, um, is to say, oh, actually it's not. And I've, I've, I've had enough practice at saying it. Actually, it's not a baby. I have a liver condition that makes me look pregnant. But as I'm saying those words, I can see the color drain from their face and I can see the horror in their eyes and the and the embarrassment. And and again, I've slowly learned that actually this is this is something that is almost worse for them. At first it was worse for me because I used to I used to burst into tears. You know, I I even had it when I was on a yoga retreat once and I was sitting around the table with with all these women and and the woman turned to me next, uh, the woman next to me turned to me and said, oh, you're hiding that well, aren't you? You know, when are you due? And I, I just burst into tears because I thought, yeah, I thought I was hiding it, but I'm obviously not hiding it. So, <laughs> you know, that's a bit gutting. So, yeah, so it's, it's I've, I've sort of learned to cope with it. But learning to cope with that means learning not, learning that everything isn't perfect, learning that, you know, things are out of my control, you know. So, yeah, that, and actually you can, that, that can still be okay. So, that has been a huge part of my journey. And actually, there are some some lemons to squeeze, not necessarily, I don't know about your condition, the lemons to squeeze, but I was thinking back to, uh, to the, the garden and how you were talking about, well, certain things thrived and certain things didn't, and the ones that do, you divide and you put in new places and you learn what does and doesn't work and kind of go with that flow. And it sounds like, that's actually a similar process to you making your choice when somebody says to you, when's it due? Oh, congratulations. You're making your choice, aren't you, as to whether to say, actually, I'm not pregnant or to go along with it and just if you, you know, just get the hell out of there, mm, as you said. Mm. Yeah. And, and honestly, now I, I mostly tell the truth because I think, you know, I, I don't want to make people uncomfortable, but I hope that I can reassure them that they don't need to feel uncomfortable because it's an honest mistake. But yeah, I, I, I don't want to, I don't want to lie. I don't want to hide. I don't want to be the shame. I don't want to feel shame. You know, I don't want to be ashamed anymore. So that's part of the process of telling the truth. And hopefully I'm, you know, try not to make people feel uncomfortable, but I think that's better than me slinking out of a shop, feeling shamed and feeling like I told a lie so that's probably not a not the healthiest way of dealing with it and I think there's another whole layer actually as we're talking which is about women and the shape of our bodies and how we're supposed to be and how we're supposed to have flat stomachs and so many of us don't (laughs) you know I certainly don't for so many different reasons and that history and that story of of how do we come to be the way we are and how the society think we ought to be one way and what's that about and then that takes me back to Mrs Earl and her feminist kind of idea because I think it's a very feminist thing that we're supposed to look a certain way as well yes and in fact feminism for me is a really new thing because interestingly enough in a sort of a, oh my goodness there's a woodpecker on my lawn really what, which one I, the red green with a red head oh don't fly away Oh, he's blown away. I was going to try and take a picture. I've seen him there before. He pecks on the lawn. So I don't know what, I guess he's getting insects. There must be something yummy in there. Yes. I think I might have lots of ants in my lawn. But he came right up to the window. Yeah. Oh, how lovely. Oh, he's beautiful. Um, in a cruel twist of fate, yeah, I did actually have quite a 
good <laughs> I don't want to, no not good what's the word what the you know I was a size 8 to 10 I was slim I never had to worry about my weight it was not one of the things that I had to worry about so I could walk into a shop and I could choose whatever clothes I wanted to wear so I was very fortunate I believed that I had what society saw as the perfect body so that was where in my youth a lot of my currency lay and I you know, I, I felt because of the, the world and the era I grew up in and because both my parents were in show business, so we were quite, they were, you know, quite looks conscious, you know, everything was about what we looked like. And there was this, you know, the, the, the sort of catchphrases in our family was all about, you know, putting on a smile for the camera and eyes and teeth and all of that. So actually that whole looking the part thing was very much part tied up with my identity. So when when that got that rug kind of got pulled from under me and actually I walk into a shop and I see what have you got that's black and big and tent shaped that I can hide in um you know it it really completely changed who I thought I was but the exciting part about that is that it has opened up a whole whole new world and I'm so much more excited about what I'm learning through reading more about feminism reading more about history reading because obviously I'm a I'm a writer and I I read like mad and I love reading women writers I love reading memoirs I love you know reading from the period as well that from the from the early 20th century when the second part of my house was built because I feel like it's with that history and there's just so much to learn from women and there's so much more to women than than the bodies that we are in but I I kind of learned that only recently and it's been a valuable and wonderful and enlightening lesson that I'm excited to sort of explore further because I think you know the truth is all of our bodies are only going one way but I think our minds can hopefully continue to improve and expand and grow as we get older can't they so and wisdom I think wisdom, as we yeah. get older and Mrs Earl presumably was older wasn't she when she was writing yeah when, as we get older we have more perspective I think and they, there's this sense that we become the crones, you know, in C R O N E, the crones of society. We're the whole, the ones that can see and have been there and have seen patterns and cycles and and have seen it before. And so things don't bother us as much as they might have done in the earlier stages. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of delight. Yeah, and quiet. I think getting older is a different way of being in the world. Yes. And I think it can be a struggle because, you know, I think a lot of women go through a phase where they start to feel invisible, don't they? I was reading an article at the weekend with Kristen Scott Thomas, and she was saying she went through a phase where she was too old to play the beautiful young romantic lead, but not old enough to get the really juicy parts. And she just felt invisible for a period of time. She looked absolutely fabulous. And from what I can see, you know, she's she's aging naturally as one should and she's as beautiful as ever and and but yeah that there's that bit where you go a bit invisible and for me it was a bit more dramatic because my body changed so dramatically in that sort of over a period of, sort of four or five years but other women it happens maybe more slowly and you sort of gradually feel like you're you're going invisible but I don't know I feel very optimistic because I think you're right there's there's so much wisdom in women our age and I think we're sharing that I yes, think we're yeah. at the earliest. I'm older than you, but I think we're at the earlier stages of. I don't think yeah. we're crones yet, but it's as you say a process of self acceptance. I think is the thing. Yeah, recognizing that actually this is who I am. I'm in this body, 
Um, thank goodness I am, because if I wasn't, I'd be dead. That's it, yeah. And, yeah, being able to make the most of things. Yeah, and actually that's something that my um, – I do quite a bit of yoga, and that's something, you know, that, that teaches us is to not – be so judgmental not be not to be judging ourselves and to be kind to ourselves and thankful and so the bits that we might otherwise look at and go oh and feel disgust or you know um, disappointment or unhappiness with actually we we treat those with the same kindness that we would treat other people with you know we wouldn't look at other women and treat them the way that we treat ourselves sometimes so you know that that kindness turning that on ourselves is very valuable I think. I used to run workshops for women about relationship with food and body image in my days when I was working as a therapist. And one of the exercises we would do was to write down three things that you've said to yourself in the last 24 hours about your body mm. and then to turn to the person next to you and to say them out loud. And we would go around the circle with each of us saying to the next person. And it was just extraordinary and so horrifying. Mm what women will say to themselves, what we will say to ourselves that we would never say mm. out, out loud. And it was very, very important to have that said out, out loud because the shame of it is diffused mm. as we say things. As, as you say to someone in the shop, no, actually, this is, this is the re real situation. Mm. That, is, that is diffusing that shame, isn't it? Yeah, or, absolutely. Yeah. That you would otherwise... If, if we keep things secret, when we keep things secret, the shame just grows in the dark mm. um, when we talk. Yeah. We're straight quite a long way. I mean, isn't it fascinating how starting with a conversation about gardens and that sense of control that you found you couldn't apply to your garden, that you mm. have to go with the flow and you have to see what does well and allow nature to have her hand in the process too how mm. that takes us into so many themes for women yes yeah I find that really really fascinating and, and 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 it's what I know and it's it's very much the conversations I have with people in their gardens when we're working mm. on their gardens well I think the garden is uh, well for me it's a a space a literal space mm -hmm. which allows me to play with creativity so I think I've always been, well, I have always been quite creative. I was always making things as a child. And then I did, you know, my A-levels were creative subjects. I did art and sculpture and English. And I've always had creative jobs. But, you know, creativity without too much of a purpose, you know, creativity for the sake of just being and exploring and playing is not something that I've been, again, that good at over the years, because I think I always try to make things useful or have a bit of a purpose. So, you know, so goal rather than yeah. So you know that's something where the garden. I guess I'm not afraid to make mistakes in the garden. You know because what's the worst that can happen? I think that's the thing. And and I think by definition, it is all just one big experiment because what worked this year may not work next year because we'll get a different type of summer. So you know you're sort of handing quite a lot of it over to chance I don't know maybe maybe other people don't garden that way <laughs> maybe that's just my excuse for being a little bit a little bit less fair with the whole thing but um well, you know I think they, you know I think this it's a, it's a continuum isn't it some people mm. are much more controlled if we look at I don't know topiary gardens where there's not very much there except for green 
spheres and shapes and they're kept very very clipped I do love that though I love that too but that is very controlled yeah and then something very different where actually you're dealing with communities of plants that sort of perennial wave planting where you're dealing with communities of plants and trying to put things together that are going to adapt and live well together but some things will just go by the by because other things will do better and knock them out yeah that's it so it's all it's all just a a bit of an experiment I do find the whole you know think about it from a creativity point of view and trying to design with color and structure and texture I find that still quite difficult because everything seems so far from my control so for example when I ran my jewelry business if I want to sit down and design a necklace and I'm going to decide that this necklace is going to have turquoise red in it those elements won't slip away from me you know I can get turquoise and I can get red and I can design them into a piece of jewelry but the problem I have with the garden is that they won't necessarily both flower at the same time or you know so I can have a vision for something but actually realizing that vision is quite difficult unless I don't know but maybe maybe I just don't spend enough time on it maybe if I did spend more time on it then I'd get a better result maybe it's as simple do you think it's that just as the more you put in the more you get out I think gardening's a very skillful business. Yeah. So, you know, when you go to one of those lovely gardens and everything does look immaculate and the colours all tone and it's all beautiful, I think, I know, a lot of time and effort, you know, colour wheels Mm. has gone into choosing those plants and making sure that they're going to be doing their thing at the same time or close to the same time. And there's a whole process of design that if you want to engage with it, can be applied you know I, mm. I apply it to gardens oh both you're starting with the structure and where the beds are and making sure there's enough space in your beds to do what you want mm. and then choosing plants that are going to give that backdrop all the time and then the things that are going to perform at different times and they're going to perform together so you get that blend of colors and then one is going to fade and something else is going to start mm. that all is it's like conducting a piece of music mm-hmm. in a way there's you know, it takes it takes planning and research, and it is hard to do. Yeah. Not everybody can do it. I I can't do it that well. But you know, and but but professional gardeners who are doing it year round and learning each year from their garden. And mm. I, you know, as I improve in my actual gardening skills, I do I do know how to put a garden together to do that. But it won't necessarily have the control you're talking about because of course we can't Mm, no you can at somewhere like Chelsea you know in a way that's that's one of the things that's a bit misleading you go to a show like a fashion show Chelsea flower show yeah that is like a fashion show and it's for that moment and that's what that gardener did with your border for that moment it looks spectacular yeah and with Chelsea flower show it's only you know it only needs to last less than a week yes and and everything just gets shipped in in pots doesn't it and it yeah yeah Yes, it's not not real, but um, no. Well, I think you know probably what I have is exactly the garden that I deserve <laughs> for the time and energy and care that I put into it. You know, and I think it suits me because it isn't the highest priority for me. You know, because I I run a business, I mum, I run a home, I have aging an aging dad and look after, and I have other commitments on my time. So the garden gets the energy that I can afford it. And also I love to spend a lot of 
I'm reading. So if I do have a spare hour, I'm probably more likely to sit by the window looking at the garden with a book <laughs> than go, or oh, I'll just get out and do some. Re- yeah, 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 exactly. Or outside in the summer. But, you know, so I, I think it's it's a garden that kind of works for me because it doesn't ask anything of me. You know, it, it I do look at it and think, oh, it's a bit tired in that corner. And yeah, that's got a bit out of control. But I don't don't judge it for that, you know, and I don't hold anything against it for that, you know. So I've kind of I'm at peace with the fact that it's it's where where it is, you know, because of what the time and attention I give it. So and bits of it are really beautiful. And you know, then my mum will arrive with a tray of cosmos, you know, in a few weeks time and we'll put them all in the bed under the kitchen window and they will be glorious for three months and you know I'll have endless fabulous cosmos and you know life will be good so really it 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 makes a difference doesn't it even though you aren't as you say putting it at highest priority even though you have a limited amount of time and budget and energy for it and other things to be doing it's still having an impact it's 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 teaching you lessons and Having having its part to play in your life, isn't it? Supporting mm. you with the cosmos, with the sarcococca, with the just the whole story of it. Yeah, the Miss Girl piece. Yeah, I mean, honestly, if it did nothing else than have the wisteria flower for two weeks, that that would be worth it. You know, it's just that in itself is such a privilege. Um, I don't know how old the wisteria plants are, but I know they must be more than probably more than 50 years old because they were here when the previous owners moved in and there are other plants like that there's a they call I think it's quince it has a peach anomaly. is it yeah so it has a, a a beautiful peach colored flower and thorns and and makes fruit that I think are quinces um, I'm flowering right now it's a it's it's geisha girl I think it's yeah that's that it plant. yeah that's it it's in but mine's in bud at the moment so they t- again they told me that that plant was there when they moved in so I know that that's a good 50 years isn't that amazing? That's such a connection to the past. It's lovely, isn't it? You know, but those those are such a they're, they're just privileges to see those plants because they're just you know the wisteria is just I know a lot of people would probably be quite envious of my wisteria. Your wisteria, <laughs> I think your wisteria is one of the best wisterias I've seen on a on a dom- you know on a domestic scale. Anyway, really, really beautiful. It's it is fab. And what's nice actually is that the two plants. We've got one on the front corner of the cottage, and then one over the archway. And the front one is the lilac one, and the one at the back is the pink one. But they flower about two weeks apart. It's really weird. So the okay. so the lilac one's about two weeks ahead of the of the pink one. So it goes on just that little bit longer as well. But the blooming pigeons. So the pigeons land on it when it's in bud and pull all the buds off. And sit there eating the buds. Have you seen this happen to wisteria? I have cheeky pigeons. Honestly, I should put yeah, red and down. It's like the, the sparrows are eating my violas in my containers at the front at the front porch. Anyway, I think we've talked ourselves out of time. I think we have. What? What a lovely, lovely conversation. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Oh, it was a pleasure. It was an absolute delight talking to you. It's always lovely chatting with you, Sarah. So thank you for inviting me to do this. Well, thank you for accepting and I'll catch you soon. Yes, indeed. I'm going to go and pick some. um, You've inspired me now. I'm going to go and pick some of my rosemary and put it in a bud vase on my desk and enjoy the scent of my rosemary. Is it flowering your rosemary? I noticed mine was flowering this morning. A little bit of it is, yeah. But I just like this, you know, I just like to pinch it and smell it. It's such that's lovely, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Lovely. Thanks, 
Claire. Thanks, Sarah. Bye-bye. Bye. And you can catch Claire online at www.opalandco.co.uk and on Instagram at opalandco. Thank you so much for listening. If you've enjoyed today's conversation, please do subscribe, rate, review and tell your friends or post about it on your Instagram stories, perhaps. Whatever appeals to you. It really does help people who'll be interested to find the podcast. And if you'd like to join in the conversation, please come and find me on Instagram at Growthfully, where I hang out pretty often. Growthfully is spelt G-R-O-W-T-H F for Freddy U-L-L-Y. The show notes for this episode are on my website at www.growthfully.co.uk where you can also sign up for my newsletter, read my blog and find out how I work one-to-one with women in their garden or online. We cover design, layout, planting, styling, gardening, whatever you need really to help you make the most of that precious space and enhance your well-being. So I think that's it for today. Until next time, enjoy your garden.